Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Neme, your host for The Wildlife and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensic Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, you'll hear my conversation with polar bear scientist Stephen Amstrup. Probably no one has done more to learn about and save polar bears than Dr. Stephen Amstrup. Indeed, his lifetime contributions were recognized in 2012 when he won the Indianapolis Prize, which is like a Nobel Prize for conservation. Dr. Amstrup has been studying polar bears and their habitat since 1980, and much of what we know about them, and even how scientists study them, comes from his work. For instance, he was the first person to apply radio telemetry to the study of polar bears. That allowed scientists to begin to understand the immense distances that polar bears travel, and that knowledge of their movements is vital to understanding polar bear ecology. He also developed studies to quantitatively describe denning habitat and plot it in a geographical information system, and he also tested and developed the ability to locate dens under the snow with forward-looking infrared imagery. That allowed him to uncover, quite literally, information about polar bear maternal denning. He made the unexpected discovery that over half of historic polar bear maternity dens in Alaska were on the drifting pack ice, and then subsequently he led work that showed that polar bears increasingly opted to den on land because of sea ice deterioration due to global warming. Over the three decades he's been studying polar bears, Amstrup has observed a profound change in their Arctic habitats and the threats that they face, and he often speaks about the need to mitigate greenhouse gases if polar bears are to survive as a species. Dr. Amstrup is currently senior scientist at Polar Bears International. He led the international team of researchers that prepared nine reports that became the basis for the decision by the U.S. Secretary of the Interior in 2008 to list polar bears as a threatened species. He is a past chairman of the IUCN Polar Bear Specialist Group and has been an active member of the group throughout his career. Prior to joining Polar Bears International staff, he was the Polar Bear Project Leader with the United States Geological Survey at the Alaska Science Center in Anchorage. Now, here is my conversation with renowned polar bear scientist, Dr. Stephen Amstrup. Why did you start studying polar bears? What got you interested in polar bears in the first place? Well, I was, uh, I was interested in bears from the, the earliest times that I can remember. And I, I uh, distinctly remember um, at the age of maybe four, five, six, something like that, having aunts and uncles uh, come to me and say, well, hi, Steve, how are you doing? And uh, are you still interested in uh, going out into the woods and studying bears? So really? <laughs> it, it must have been at very early ages that I was just struck by bears. And, and bears have really captured the human imagination for you know a whole variety of reasons. I'm not sure we really understand. Um, you know, they can walk bipedally and, and have some, you know, potentially human characteristics in that way. They're uh, revered by most native cultures. So there's, there's a lot of mystique about bears that captured me early on. And, uh, you know, for when I was a youngster, I, I wanted to become a forest ranger and go study bears. I didn't really know what that meant, but as I grew older, I understood what it meant in terms of an education and uh, degrees that I might need and such. And um, 
by the time I got my bachelor's degree, which actually was in forestry from the University of Washington, uh, I was pretty convinced that I wanted to go do a master's on bears. And uh, uh, I managed to get a master's program at the University of Idaho, uh, studying black bears in central Idaho. And uh, so that was like a dream come true. After I got that degree, I uh, went to work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, and I was actually studying pronghorn antelope, which were, you know, much different animal. But uh, after five years of that, uh, the opportunity to go to Alaska and study polar bears came up. And I still had a real high regard for bears and was still keen on, on learning more about them. And I couldn't imagine that there was a riper plum in the wildlife profession than going into the Arctic and studying polar bears. You know, great great white bears roaming around on a uh, white landscape that looks more like the surface of the moon than, than something that we uh, usually think of. And uh, so I went up in, in 1980, took over the polar bear project, and I guess they say the rest is history. I stayed there 30 <laughs> years and, and uh, uh, had a lot of experiences. Uh, I feel really fortunate in many ways regarding the timing uh, of my going up to the north because I arrived there in the very early days of just figuring out how to go out and study these animals. Uh, there wasn't a lot of hard science about polar bears available uh, in the 70s. People had been studying them and a lot of the studies were trying to figure out how we can get out into the environment and, and learn about these animals and I came along at a a really formative time when I was able to really contribute to that. So you've, was, you've made oh, some huge contributions in how one even studies polar bears. Um, can you talk about some of the things that you had to adapt or, or figure out for yourself? Well, uh, one of the big challenges in studying polar bears compared to just about anything else that scientists have been interested in is that uh, when you go to the north coast of Alaska, all the polar bears are north of the land. So whenever you go out into their environment, you're going away from terra firma. You're going away from what is familiar to humans. And uh, so how could we make, uh, how could we uh, develop an understanding of these creatures given that challenge? And we were interested in how many bears are there. That's probably the the most commonly asked question about polar bears. But in order to understand that question, you have to know where they live. Uh, you know, how many are there depends on some kind of a geographic area, uh, unless we were willing to assume that all polar bears worldwide were the same population. So uh, one of the first things that I did is I recognized, you know, we really need to understand what Alaska's population is so that we can try and then estimate what the size of that population is. And, and I was the first person to successfully apply radio telemetry to polar bears. There had been some attempts previously, but they had met with marginal success or no success. And uh, uh, through trial and error, and, and because of some of my experience working with black bears in Idaho, uh, I was uh, able to make radio telemetry work, and, and we began to understand the tremendous movements of these animals. Uh, you know, some, some of the animals that we studied had activity areas uh, that are about the size of the state of Montana. Seriously? Wow. Yeah, uh, 600,000 or more square kilometers. So, 
you know, it was it was really eye opening. It was really exciting. I mean, nobody could have imagined that there were uh, quadrupeds, four-legged animals out there that were routinely roaming around activity areas that size. Another really interesting thing that also depended on uh, on uh, radio telemetry was when I first came to Alaska, people wondered where polar bears in Alaska went to give birth. Polar bears create dens in ice and snow in the fall of the year, and they give birth around the 1st of January. And then they emerge from their dens in the spring, uh, late March, early April. Uh, some significant information had been collected on polar bear denning in Russia and in uh, Norway in the Svalbard Islands. But in Alaska, uh, where polar bears den had been an elusive question. And uh, one of the things that I found right away was that uh, more than half of the bears in Alaska actually were denning on the drifting pack ice. This wasn't known elsewhere in the polar bear range, and, and it's really quite an exciting discovery because these, these females that are pregnant go into their dens in a snow drift in the fall, and if they're on the sea ice, they may drift as much as uh, six, 800, 1,000 kilometers over the course of the winter in the blind. They emerge in a totally different part of the world, and then they come back home. And uh, so, you know, it was just a remarkable discovery, and it kind of uh, really turned our eyes about, well, what, you know, what can we expect from these animals? And, and you know, how does, how does an animal that's transported that far in the blind find their way back home? And but so, yes, they did. And how you know, do at least, they? At least when birds are migrating, they can look where they're going. <laughs> you know, they have the stars, <laughs> or they have the sun, or they have something. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, but some of the early experiences that I had were were really quite remarkable, and and to this day have uh, uh, have become really important parts of our understanding of the basic biology and ecology of these creatures. Of course, this leads to two questions. One is what happens when you're losing the sea ice, which we're doing, and also how can a polar bear find its way back home? Has, do you know yet how it does it? We don't know the answer to that. Um, they seem to have a remarkable ability to do it. Uh, people who are studying migration in birds, for example, uh, are learning a lot about you know, internal, uh, basically magnets in their head, kind of an internal compass that sort of lets them know where they are. Uh, in the case of polar bears, we don't really know the answer to that. Um, I'm not aware that anybody has really been doing the physiological work that would be required. Uh, you know, if you're studying migratory songbirds, uh, it's reasonable to put them in cages and surround them with magnets or, you know, put them in a, uh, a simulated sky environment and see how they orient themselves. But it's kind of hard to do that with a thousand-pound <laughs> polar bear. <laughs> And then on the denning, I also, um, I had read a story that of a very scary encounter that you had in the early 2000s when um, your team was doing research on bear dens and you ac accidentally picked one that was occupied. Yeah, that was one of the uh, more exciting <laughs> adventures that I had. We, we were doing a study to try and see if we could see polar bear dens under the snow with an infrared device. And the reason for that was because we had identified that although many polar bears were still denning offshore, 
uh, many did den on land, and the habitat that they denned on was pretty widely scattered over broad reaches of the North Slope. Um, and in that same habitat, there was a lot of oil and gas exploration and development going on. And um, if we were to say, well, all of the potential denning habitat is off-limits for uh, development companies to explore, uh, it would have been extremely costly because the winter time when the polar bears are in their dens is the time when they need to get out there and do their exploratory drilling and seismic activity. It, uh, they need to do that in the winter to avoid damage to the tundra, uh, etc. Uh, and so we had this quandary: well, uh, you know, is there a way that we can allow for this industrial activity, which? was a, a severe mandate by both the state and the federal government to, you know, explore for additional hydrocarbon resources uh, and, and protect polar bears at the same time. And so what we thought was, well, if we could identify the actual snowdrifts that contained polar bears versus those that don't, we could allow this activity to continue and just guide it so that it didn't overlap with the... Uh, the dens of bears. And, uh, and so our goal was to see if there was a way to, to see these dens with, uh, see the heat rising through the surface of the snow from uh, a polar bear den. Uh, the surface of the snow over, the, over a den looks just like any other snow drift. So you can't see it in the visual spectrum. But infrared indeed showed us uh, a pretty significant potential to see most of the dens. We found out we couldn't see them all, but we could see most of them. But in developing the, the study, the, the event that you asked about came because in order to appreciate why we could see some dens and not other dens, we had to go into the dens after the bears left and measure how big they were and how thick the snow over the top was and that sort of thing. And there was one den that we'd been watching for quite a while. It was not a radio-collared bear, so we couldn't just rely on its radio signal telling us when the, the den was abandoned. And we knew the bear was staying there later than a lot of them had. But then we had a period of uh, uh, several days where we just didn't get out to look at the den. Uh, and then there was a snowstorm. We came back a few days later, and we could see where the den was. There was a little depression in the snow and there was no sign of any tracks around all almost all the other bears had left their dens and we thought surely she's gone by now and if she was still there she would have reopened the den after the snowstorm and we'd see tracks and evidence so we landed and we went down to to dig into the den and uh, i started to dig and when i put uh, pressure on the shovel to take a scoop of the hard snow uh the change in my weight pushed my right leg right down through the roof of the lair. And at first I didn't think anything about it because I thought, oh, well, I've fallen through the lair. At least now we know how to get in. Um, <laughs> but I heard this kind of a woof, and uh, I had a hat on, and it was kind of windy, and so I wasn't sure what I heard. And I looked down in the hole that my leg was dangling in because I was up to my crotch, just with my right leg dangling into the lair, and there was the female's head right next to my thigh. Oh, my God. And, and, and she was just looking up at me with this incredible look of a combination of surprise and curiosity, like, what the hell are you doing here, you know? <laughs> and, and 
yet this, uh, you know, this may sound a little anthropomorphic, but there was a kind of a soft look in her eyes. It wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I pulled my leg out as quick as I could and rolled down the hill, but in that instant of looking into her eyes, I wasn't impressed that this was an animal that really wanted to just pull me in and devour me. And in fact, she had plenty of time to do that. So obviously that wasn't the case. And uh, I rolled away. She came out and charged at me a little bit. And then she went off and made a bluff charge at at my assistant who was on the uphill side of the den. Um, And then the helicopter pilot got the engine started and the sound of the turbine cranking up um, scared the the bear away. And uh, we were able to go capture her, bring her back to the den, reunite her with her cubs, and uh, the story had a happy ending. Uh, But there were a few tense moments. Was that the scariest experience you've had? Or have there been worse? (laughs) (laughs) It it probably, from the you know, from the standpoint uh, of an oh my god experience, it probably was. Uh, But uh, yeah, we've had a few other experiences uh, similar. Uh, On several occasions, we would be down on the ice uh, working on a bear that we had captured. So have an immobilized bear, and we're maybe putting a radio collar on it or weighing it and measuring it. And other bears will come up out of curiosity. And uh, I remember uh, when uh, George Derner, uh, who worked for me for many years up there before I left the USGS, in his first year, uh, we had tagged this this big male bear, 1,140 pounds, I remember. He was a, a real monster. And uh, the next day, we were out tagging, uh, and we captured another bear, and we were down in this real rubbly, jagged ice, and there wasn't many flat spots for us to work. And uh, we were kind of struggling to get the tagging done and the measurements and things that we wanted. And uh, we looked up, and just on the other side of this pressure ridge, about probably 30 or 40 feet away, this same big bear that we had captured the day before was standing up on its hind legs, looking over the ridge of ice and looking down on us. And I can tell you, he looked like he was as big as a house. Wow. Uh, but he was not, uh, and we started hollering, and he sort of ambled off. He wasn't really after us. He was mostly just curious. One of the things that, that the, the sort of traditional lore and legend has it is that polar bears are one of the few animals that will intentionally stalk and kill humans. And certainly they are... Uh, a potential hazard when you're out in their environment. They're a large predator that eats, you know, typically eats things that are about the size of you and me. Uh, but my sense is that they aren't really terribly aggressive under normal circumstances uh, for humans. And I think that that, uh, that uh, legend or that uh, sort of uh, reputation that they have of intentionally stalking humans probably carries back to the days of the original Arctic explorers when they were going out over the ice with dog sleds. And the musher would look over his shoulder and there's a polar bear following up behind him in his tracks. Well, if you think about it, polar bears are are not dumb. And if you're creating a trail out there, it's going to be easier to walk on that trail than it is to break a new trail. It's easier for anybody to do that. And also, 
uh, you know, you're creating a trail that probably has an interesting smell. And polar bears are, are long-lived animals. They really depend on exploring anything that appears novel in their environment. And uh, so I think a lot of these bears that ended up probably getting shot by those early explorers because they feared for their lives were probably more curious than anything else. And they had encountered a, a track. It was easy to follow. It made their walking a little bit easier. And maybe it smelled good. And uh, so, you know, I think that a lot of that sort of reputation that polar bears have of being, uh, you know, really nasty creatures is, is a little bit overblown. Do bears have, polar bears you've met have personalities? Yeah, I, I, I think that any long-lived animal, uh, you, you see differences in personality, just like people who uh, regularly own dogs. They might have two or three dogs that are the same breed, and each one of them is an individual. And bears typically live longer than dogs. Uh, they have even more individual personalities. Some of them I would not want to have fallen into their dens. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we see this uh, uh, very t- even in the earliest ages. When we, when we go up in the spring of the year and catch females with new cubs, the, 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 the new bears that we see in the spring that people think of as, well, that's what a newborn polar bear looks like. Actually, when they're born, they're about the size of a rat. But when they emerge from the den, they've grown quite a bit, and they weigh 20 to 30 pounds, sometimes a little bit more, and they just peg the cute meter. Uh, you know, they're, I was going to ask if they're as cute as as you think. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, they they are they are pretty much unbelievable. Uh, the pictures are are uh, every bit as uh, uh, true as as their real life. They're, they're very cute animals, but they each have their own personalities. And uh, you know, we typically would would dart the female with a, a you know shoot it with a projectile syringe containing uh, a drug that would put it to sleep. Uh, and we do that from the helicopter, but then we would catch the cubs by hand because we didn't want to to shoot them with a dart. The dart could injure a small animal like that. So we catch them by hand and give them an injection with a small syringe and uh, to put them to sleep so that we can measure them and such. The uh, The cubs all had their own individual personalities, and some of them, when they saw that mother wasn't moving, they would come running to us. Um, that didn't happen very often, but some of them did. Most of them uh, you could pick up and you could handle to some extent, but some of them were just like chainsaws with fur. Huh. So even at the earliest of ages, they you know they had their own uh, individual personalities, and you know there were enough bears that we caught repeatedly that we could see. Boy, you know this bear just responds differently. This bear charges the helicopter when it sees it. This bear runs like hell. Uh, you know, this bear hunkers down behind a pressure ridge hoping you don't see it. And, uh, you know, they just, they did have a lot of variation in, in their behaviors. So I have to ask you, what is so special about polar bears and what's really their role in the ecosystem? Polar bears are the apex predator in the ecosystem. They're at the top of the food chain. Uh, now, it happens that in the Arctic marine environment, the food chain is relatively short. The, the ecosystem starts with uh, algae, fungi, bacteria that grow on the underside of the sea ice. And those organisms feed larger creatures that 
look something like shrimp. Uh, small fish eat those creatures. Seals eat the fish, and polar bears eat the seals. So it's a relatively straightforward, relatively simple uh, ecosystem. But it all depends on that growth, that primary productivity that occurs on the underside of the sea ice and in the water column right at the bottom surface of the sea ice. It's what we call the epontic uh, community. And uh, polar bears, I think one of, the, one of the values in polar bears for us, especially in this time of global warming, is to recognize that although there's a lot of questions we don't know the answers to about those things that are on the underside of the sea ice, um, what we do know is that if polar bears are doing well, everything below them in the ecosystem is probably doing well because polar bears integrate everything that's under them. Uh, if polar bears are not doing well, it probably means that something is amiss in that ecosystem. And, and what is amiss right now is that we see less and less sea ice uh, because the world is warming, and we're seeing the sea ice disappear uh, preferentially from many of the places where polar bears like to be. On the north slope of Alaska, there's a narrow continental shelf of shallow water that is highly productive. You go 120 miles north of Prudhoe Bay, and it's uh, six or 8,000 feet deep. The water is very unproductive, and um, uh, we believe that it's very poor hunting for polar bears out there. Well, it used to be that the sea ice hung over that continental shelf for all or most of the year, and polar bears would stay throughout the summer on that ice over the shallow water hunting seals. Now the sea ice uh, uh, is, uh, is way offshore, three, four, five hundred miles. Uh, when I first went to Alaska in 1980, in the summertime, you could stand on the north slope and you could look, you could stand on the beach and you could look out and you could see the sea ice. And if you had a spotting scope, uh, you might have been lucky enough to see a polar bear out there patrolling for seals. Now, you can't see the sea ice with the most powerful uh, spotting scope in the world because it's beyond the curvature of the earth. Wow. So that's why those suggestions that you hear about, about, oh, well, why don't we put, you know, massive, huge things of styrofoam in the ecosystem for the polar bears, why that wouldn't really work. It wouldn't feed the bacteria and fungi. And Exactly right. People uh, simplistically think of... Uh, the sea ice is just a platform that polar bears walk around on. And indeed it is. It, it provides that purpose for them. Um, but more importantly, it is the foundation for the ecosystem that supports them. Uh, of course, another, and styrofoam wouldn't fulfill that same function. Another uh, reason, though, that, that those ideas are kind of lame is uh, if you think about the scale, I had uh, uh, one engineer call me one time, this is a couple of years ago, and he was just uh, really adamant that he had the solution to saving polar bears. And in fact, you can go on the Internet now and you can see the, what has come to be the final uh, product from this was to put out a series of artificial islands out there that are tethered to the bottom and that polar bears will be able to therefore rest on these things um but 
they're missing the point of the productivity that we just addressed, and they're missing the scale. We've lost an uh, area of sea ice like twice the size of Texas. You would have to create a lot of styrofoam to replace that. Yeah, I had I had another uh, another guy call me up, and he said, "Well, you know, they've got floating airports in Japan." And I said, "Well, yeah, a floating airport—that's maybe a few square kilometers. We're talking about thousands of square kilometers." So twice the size of Texas is how much we've lost. Yeah, something like that. Wow. I mean, it, it's it's incredible. Uh, if you look at at the maps that you can see at the national at the the uh, uh, National Snow and Ice Data Center in Colorado, you can see an image of where the ice used to be compared to where it was last summer. And it's just an enormous area. To think that you're going to create that much uh, artificial habitat uh, is a pipe dream. And, and imagine the greenhouse gases <laughs> that would be produced by trying to create such a thing. <laughs> Well, that actually leads me right to another question about the recent um, decision at the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, also known as CITES, regarding polar bears. And there was uh, basically a proposal put forth by the United States to uplist the polar bears from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1, which would ban all commercial trade in polar bears and their parts. Um, so I wanted to know, sort of, were you involved in that proposal? And because, I was, a, I, yeah, a lot of your research was used in discussing the proposal. I was not involved in, in drafting the proposal at all. Uh, you know, I, I no longer work for the, the U.S. federal government, and, um, you know, these kinds of proposals are, are typically put forward by... Uh, uh, agencies or agencies uh, collaborating with other organizations. Um, you know, the the proposal was put forward based on the threats to polar bears that we've just discussed. However, um, the proposal to uh, the limitations, further limitations on on trade, don't address the challenge that we just discussed. They have nothing to do with uh, the. Uh, global warming and the disappearance of polar bears' habitat. Uh, in fact, you know, I sometimes wonder if these uh, proposals couldn't actually become a distraction from the main thing that we need to focus on, which is uh, uh, reducing our emissions of greenhouse gases. Did you expect it to pass? Would it have helped? Or would it have helped elevate the issue because it was clear it wasn't really from the trade that polar bears were threatened, but the trade was, you know, yet one more thing yeah. hurting polar well, bears. Well, um, actually, I didn't know how it was going to go. Uh, the, the CITES conventions are often as much politics as they are science. Uh, the science is very clear that all polar bears ultimately are threatened with extinction. Uh, there's, there's, unless we come to grips with our emissions and reduce them, uh, we are going to lose all polar bears. I think all of the scientists in the world who are most familiar with the knowledge that we currently have about polar bears believe that that's the case. Will there be some polar bears that may survive in some small pockets for some time? Maybe. Uh, 
but uh, it'll be nothing like the extent uh, and numbers of polar bears that we have now. Uh, so the people who put forward this proposal are thinking about the future of polar bears, but uh, uh, restricting legal trade across international borders has no guarantee of affecting harvest, and affecting harvest is not really the problem. In 2010, I wrote a paper that ended up being published in Nature, uh, and my colleagues and I uh, showed uh, pretty clearly that saving polar bears is all about uh, lowering uh, or uh, stopping temperature rise, and that only if we get our act together and do that will these on-the-ground measures like restricting hunting, restricting human access to certain areas in the Arctic, things like that, those could only be effective if we also uh, are uh, uh, lowering our, our emissions. Um, further, with, with regard to CITES, the, the limits on international trade are not necessarily or obviously linked to reductions in harvest. Uh, you know, there's, I think uh, there's an assumption that if uh, the people who harvest polar bears have fewer avenues for trading their skins and, and other parts that uh, maybe fewer of them will be harvested. But uh, trade within countries, and the main country that harvests polar bears is Canada, um, you know, trade within Canada uh, is likely to continue. Harvests in Canada are likely to continue because polar bear hunting is a very important part of Aboriginal culture. So, uh, you know, it's not clear that restricting trade would uh, confer a conservation benefit. And it is clear that it would likely alienate many of the people who we would like to have as allies in the fight against global warming. And these are the local resident people who live in the Arctic and who, like polar bears, are the main victims of uh, global warming that's caused by you and me living in lower latitudes. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, the the main emphasis in trying to uh, uplist polar bears from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1 is a little bit displaced. That isn't to say that the people who proposed it aren't genuinely concerned about the future of polar bears. I think they are. But uh, I think that... Well, I know I would like to see the kind of energy uh, that was going forward by various governments to um, list polar bears or to uplist polar bears in CITES. I'd like to see that same amount of energy at the government level uh, to address uh, greenhouse gas emissions. That's what we really need to do to save polar bears. Do you think having this proposal and having some press on it has actually raised the awareness of people about global warming just by having it, even though it, it wasn't adopted, just having that publicity out there? Or was it really misplaced publicity anyway? I think um, I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, you know, the logic that I just used is um, the uh, uh, is based on a mental model of what uh, is likely on a conservation field to make a benefit for polar bears. That is, if we restrict trade 
is that likely to reduce harvest, and is that likely to result in some uh, prolonging of the ability of polar bears to uh, to live in certain areas? Uh, and you know, my conclusion on that is that it probably isn't. Um, but you know, like all models, that could be an incorrect model. Um, but unfortunately, I don't see much in the general media about what assumptions are uh, going into the various negotiations. And what I what I really see is a lot of emotion about, well, how could you possibly go out and shoot these beautiful animals uh, that are threatened with extinction? And that's sort of the wrong level of what we need to be talking about. We need to be talking about what is the real root cause of the threat. Polar bears, like other wildlife, are renewable resources if they have stable habitat and are being managed in a sustainable way. And uh, I think we can't lose sight of that, and we can't lose sight of the fact that many cultures have a history going back thousands of years of hunting these animals. Uh, so we need to tread very carefully if we're going to take if we're going to adopt a large umbrella uh, piece of legislation like CITES uplisting, that can affect the lives of lots of people. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the media attention that I've seen on this has been uh, largely, uh, well, how could they not be listed because, uh, or uplisted because they're a threatened species or they're an endangered species. And there has been very little in the way of discussion about what that really means, why polar bears are endangered, and what we really need to do to save them. Now, I'm not going to say that at some point in the future we won't want to just pull out all the stops we can, banning international trade, uh, closing off hunting seasons. I mean, all of those things may eventually be on the table, but... For the foreseeable future, there are a number of populations that we can probably harvest on a, on a uh, I'm not, I don't want to say sustainable because that suggests perpetual, but uh, they can be harvested safely for a number of years before global warming begins to negatively affect uh, their habitat like it is the habitats of bears in Alaska or Hudson Bay now. Uh, so there are places where bears can safely be hunted for some time to come in a, in a transient sense. And to stop that hunting uh, globally uh, because we want to address uh, a concern that uh, um, somehow we believe uh, trade will restrict that hunting uh, and then uh, that that somehow will allow us to get to the root uh, answer of reducing greenhouse gases. I'm not sure that there's much logic there. Makes sense. And actually, uh, the IUCN, the polar bear specialist group, has also disagreed with the U.S. proposal for exactly the reasons that you had mentioned, or or similar reasons. Mm-hmm. And are, you're and you're a member of that group yes, as well. Yes, yes. And I was you, I was uh, on the drafting committee of that position statement. What's next to protect polar bears and what can people do to help? I know you've been quoted as saying polar bear conservation can't occur in the Arctic. <laughs> and um, I actually love that. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what, what people can do. Well, that, that really is 
the crux of it. Uh, you know, the, the traditional model of conservation has been uh, that we can build a fence around an area, we can keep people out, we can control hunting, uh, and then we can uh, go home at night and sleep well thinking, well, we have, uh, you know, we have saved this species, we have saved this habitat. Uh, but you can't build a fence to protect polar bear habitat from rising temperatures. And that's really what we're faced with. The, the only way to save polar bears is for you and me and everybody else we know to walk more softly on the earth, to recognize that we have to use less carbon-based energy. The, the situation with global warming is relatively straightforward. You hear a lot in the news about the uncertainties, uh, how soon it's going to be uh, a certain temperature in a certain locale, or when is the first summer that the sea ice is going to disappear entirely in the Arctic. Uh, these are questions that scientists can't really predict very well because of the tremendous amount of chaos in the climate system. That chaos in the climate system is going to continue, and it's going to prevent very precise kinds of predictions like that. But what we know is that that chaos is going to be occurring over a higher and rising baseline. And so the only reason that the uncertainty created by the natural variation or chaos in the system, the only reason that that's important is if uh, we don't care about the future that we're uh, leaving uh, for our children and grandchildren because it will get warmer, and uh, you can think of this as a, uh, a threshold exceedance issue. We may not be able to say the first year that the sea ice is going to disappear entirely in the Arctic, but we know with absolute certainty that it will if we stay in our present path. And so, to me, a lot of that uncertainty, or all of that uncertainty, is, is largely irrelevant, because we know we're on a bad path. You know, if, if, if your goal is to drive from Vermont, where you live, to San Francisco, and you start out by driving north, you know, you're going to correct your path. Well, we're on a very bad path. Uh, we're on a path that very soon will take us far off course of a climate that humans have uh, become accustomed to and in which they've thrived. And yet we're just proceeding along uh, and not doing anything about it. Is it too late to save the polar bears? Are we on that path? Can we change it? We are, we are on the path uh, that uh, will result in polar bears being eliminated. But uh, my work and the work of many others has shown that there is still time to save them. Uh, some of them will disappear. Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that we've already probably put enough carbon into the atmosphere that some polar bear populations at the southern extent of their range or in areas where uh, warm currents affect the sea ice, uh, et cetera, may, those may already disappear. Uh, and, uh, but we still have time to save many of them. Uh, that was one of the outcomes in, uh, uh, from my paper that I published in Nature in 2010. And we still have time. However, every year we delay... Uh, puts us farther down that path, and at some point it is going to be too late to act because the warming that we're uh, putting into the atmosphere now is not, effect, is not felt immediately. 
there's a latent effect. The, the ocean absorbs a lot of the heat. Uh, it's ultimately the, the, the temperature that the Earth will achieve based on a certain amount of carbon being released this year uh, won't be felt for 20, 30, 40 years. So we need to recognize that uh, the farther into the future we go, the closer we get to crossing some of those thresholds that we aren't going to like very well. And so if people um, ask their congresspersons to have a less carbon-based energy policy or to fund research and development as well as taking their own actions to walk more public transit and things like that, that all would be helpful. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line here is that we really need to pay the hidden costs of relying on carbon. Uh, we have basically grown our society, grown our culture, by subsidizing it with the primary productivity of the past. That is the oil and gas and coal that's been in the earth for millennia. And we're bringing it out and putting it back into the Earth's carbon cycle. And that, ha that is required to change our climate. And uh, what we need to do is to say, okay, to the extent that we're going to continue to use carbon-based energy, we need to pay the full costs. And the full costs are the things that we will be imposing on the people in the next generation and the polar bears in the next generation. Yeah, I, oh, I just wanted to to close or end our conversation with you telling me one more story about your polar bear experience, uh, perhaps a heartwarming story or something that was very eye-opening in terms of your research or in terms of what what's going on right now with polar bears. I mean, most of us have not met a polar bear. <laughs> In the wild, maybe in a, a zoo or aquarium, but uh. <laughs> well, um, you know, as far as heartwarming stories, uh, you know, I have to say that that although it was one of the most exciting, uh, also it was one of the most heartwarming just to look into the eyes of uh, that polar bear that could have chewed my leg off if it wanted to. Uh, you know, there. I can't tell you exactly what it was that I saw in the eyes of that bear, but it wasn't, well, I'm going to get you. And I think that the the, the real take-home lesson is that we can coexist with these creatures. Uh, you know, we, uh, uh, we have the ability to change our ways so that we can continue to have polar bears for future generations of humans to appreciate. And, uh, you know, when I think of... Uh, of the movements of these animals out there and, and their ability to to make a living in that environment. I mean, when you're flying over the sea ice in a helicopter and you look down and it's all this rubble and from a, from a high altitude, it looks almost like the, the uh, surface of a cracked eggshell. And you look at that and you think, my God, you know, how could there be any life down there? And then you get down there and you realize that these giant white bears have figured out a way to not only survive out there, but to thrive and to become the biggest of the non-aquatic carnivores. Uh, to me, that's just so impressive. And um, I, uh, you know, I have to think that we as humans who are in total control of whether or not those giant creatures continue to exist, uh, 
that we will take the action necessary to do it. Thank you very much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been fun. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with polar bear scientist Dr. Stephen Amstrup. I'm Laurel Nemi, and this has been The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. Thanks for listening.